Jacob's story would make a great Netflix series, and now we're on to the next generation, Jacob's children. As a parent, I remember at times finding it hard to believe that God was at work, even still there at times in my children's lives, trying to hold on to the fact that their journey in their, in their lives and their spiritual journey was theirs, not mine. And it's interesting to note here that Jacob wonders about Joseph's dreams and what they might mean, perhaps remembering that God met him in his dreams when he was younger. Genesis 37. So Jacob settled again in the land of Canaan, where his father had lived as a foreigner. This is the account of Jacob and his family. When Joseph was 17 years old, he often tended his father's flocks. He worked for his half-brothers, the sons of his father's wives, Villa and Zilpah. But Joseph reported to his father some of the bad things his brothers were doing. Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. So one day, Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph, a beautiful robe. But his brothers hated Joseph because their father loved him more than the rest of them. They couldn't say a kind word to him. One night, Joseph had a dream. And when he told his brothers about it, they hated him more than ever. Listen to this dream, he said. We were out in the field tying up bundles of grain. Suddenly my bundle stood up and your bundles all gathered around and bowed low before mine. His brothers responded, so you think you will be our king, do you? Do you actually think you will reign over us? And they hated him all the more because of his dreams and the way he talked about them. Soon Joseph had another dream, and again he told his brothers about it. Listen, I have had another dream, he said. The sun, moon, and eleven stars bowed low before me. This time he told the dream to his father, as well as to his brothers. But his father scolded him. What kind of dream is that, he asked. Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow to the ground before you? But while his brothers were jealous of Joseph, his father wondered what the dreams meant. The peace of God be with us all. Ruth and Elliot Handler birthed their baby girl into this world, a world in which they had tons of expectation for their daughter. She was tiny and exceptionally beautiful and blonde and blue eyes, and the Handlers just knew that uh, she was something special. And she didn't disappoint. She became nothing less than a Madison Avenue sensation dominating the fashion and the entertainment worlds. By the tender age of 10, she had already earned more than $500 million. Can you imagine having that by the time of being 10 years old? And even today, decades later, there seems to be no end to her popularity. She makes $2 billion a year every year. The world loves the handler's daughter. The Handlers provided her with a few additional siblings, each as beautiful and as flawless as their older sister, but none have reached her iconic status. Always beautiful, always wearing one of those thousands of outfits from her closet, rich and trendy on the cusp of today's fashion, wildly successful in whatever she chooses to do, and forever the center of attention surrounded by a smiling cluster of family and friends. 
She's absolutely perfect, and you probably know her. Her name is Miss Barbara Millicent Roberts, better known as Barbie. The only problem with Barbie, of course, is that she is a fantasy. She is a toy. She is a mass of molded rubber and vinyl. And while certain Barbies can be worth tens of thousands of dollars, more times than not, poor Barbie ends up naked and dismembered on the floor of the older brother's bedroom. Ruth Handler had a dream when she invented and crafted and brought Barbie to creation. Ruth had a real daughter, and she thought that her real daughter needed inspiration, aspiration. She needed more than a baby doll that would just reinforce the traditional roles of the time. She needed someone, all girls needed someone that they could look up to, this ideal, this picture of perfection to inspire them to become something beyond their wildest dreams. And thus Barbie was born born of the best and the highest idealism, but idealism, what could be, can turn into what should be. And the idealism can become this taskmaster holding us hostage to some unattainable perfection. An inspirational dream can become a totalitarian fantasy. Now, I think the church has done that with our families. Your family needs to be the biblical family, we are told. And we don't even know what that means. Now, when we're told that, the people who tell us that have an idea of what they think it means. Male husband, female wife, only one of each, 2.35 children, living in a safe neighborhood behind a picket fence, saying grace before every meal, having nightly devotions together, attending church at least twice a week, The mother should be at home. The kids should never stray. The father should be dependable and unflappable. The Bible should be worn out. The grass always carefully manicured. The home always clean. Look, that is a fantasy. That's Ken and Barbie stuff. And most of us don't lead lives that look like Ken and Barbie. They look more like Archie and Edith, the bunkers. Or they look more like Homer and Marge Simpson and their family. But here is the irony of all ironies. Most families in the Bible look more like the bunkers or the Simpsons or the McBrayers or the Rains or the Riles or the McHughes than Ken and Barbie. You best be careful when you start talking about the biblical family as the model to which you should inspire. Which biblical family are we talking about? Do you want the first biblical family, Adam and Eve, where one son killed the other? Do you want to be Hosea, the prophet, whose wife was the village prostitute? Do you want to be married to that cad Solomon who had 700 wives and thus 700 sets of in-laws? Do you want your marriage to be arranged by your father? Because that's how marriage is in the Bible. We're most likely and most often consummated. Do you want to give your 15-year-old daughter to a 30-year-old man with the primary duty of pleasing him sexually and birthing sons as quickly as possible? That's a scandal in today's headlines. But in the Bible, it was a common act. 
this biblical family is not for our aspiration, but it is there for our inspiration, our consolation. Most of the families found in the Bible are more dysfunctional than yours. And yet, in all of that maladapted, injured, self-inflicted mayhem that is the true biblical family, because there is no perfect model, we find in their failures and in their regrets the seeds of redemption and grace. We find God at work. And so it is with the family of Joseph. I began a series last week entitled Dreams That You Dream, exploring Joseph's life, the dreamer that he was, and today we're introduced to his first dreams, but also introduced to his context, a bizarre, disjointed, combative family of origin that was nothing short of a clown circus. Here are the key players. One, manipulative, scheming father. Four, jealous, competing wives and mothers. Twelve, brawling sons, and we don't know how many daughters. And they are all living on the same compound. They are all living under the same Bedouin tent. And certainly this is a biblical family because there it is in the Bible. But traditional is not the word that seems to come to mind. Chaotic, maybe, but not traditional. This family is a seething cauldron of anger and resentment, and it boils over constantly. We should not be surprised when we understand how Joseph's family arrived at this malfunction junction. His father, Jacob, having swindled his twin brother out of the family will, runs away to live with his uncle, obviously to avoid being murdered for this crime. And there... Far from the reach of, his, of the vengeance of his twin, he falls madly and hopelessly in love. He falls madly and hopelessly in love with his uncle's daughter, his cousin, Rachel. The jokes write themselves right here. Here is the first redneck in history. <laughs> Though he's not from Alabama or Georgia or Arkansas, he is in love with his cousin. And you know that that family is going to be a mess when it begins like this. But you can't stop love, I guess. He proposes not to her, but to his uncle, her father. That's how it was in those days. And his uncle says, sure, you can marry her. But seeing how you're penniless... And seeing how you're on the run, and seeing how that you are bringing nothing of worth into this relationship, see the shine on this biblical family thing is getting dimmer by the minute. His uncle says, you can work it off. Seven years. Work for me seven years on my farm, herding my sheep and my goats. Seven years, and she is all yours. Not many young men would take that deal. But Jacob is in love. So he works for seven long years to acquire Rachel. Old Jake, this trickster, this schemer, he's the one that causes others to stumble, but apparently is also a hopeless romantic. The years pass, 
And eventually the wedding feast is thrown, the family celebrates, the newlywed couple consummates their marriage, and as was custom in those days, they have a marriage, and then they retire to the wedding chamber, but on the next morning following the wedding, it's not Rachel in Jacob's bed, it is her older, ugly sister Leah. And Jacob is enraged. And he goes to his uncle, Leah and Rachel's father, and he says, what have you done? I worked seven years for Rachel, and you have given me Leah. And his uncle real nonchalantly says, look, son, we don't give away the younger daughter first. The older daughter has to be married first, so you get Leah. But here's the deal. Give me seven more years, and you can have Rachel. What's a man to do? Jacob does it. 14 years, a decade and a half, and he finally has the love of his life, Rachel. But he also has Rachel's scorned sister, Leah. As is inevitable, children begin to arrive, I want you to note the names of Leah's children because Leah begins to give birth first. These are the names of the 12 tribes of Israel, but here are the meanings behind those names. Reuben, the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. Simeon, The Lord heard that I am not loved. Levi, at last my husband will become attached to me. And now Rachel, unable to achieve a pregnancy herself and thus unable to compete with her sister who is birthing sons left and right, gives her servant Billa to Jacob as a wife, as a surrogate. And the names of Billah's children, named by Rachel, are as equally as revealing. Dan, God has vindicated me. Naphtali, I have had a great struggle with my sister and I have won. Leah, having reached the end of her birthing years, refuses to be outdone. She offers Jacob her maidservant, Zilpah. And he takes her into his bed as well. And the sons that she produces are named Gad, what good fortune, Asher, how happy I am. And then finally, finally, for the love of God, finally, Rachel, the true love of Jacob's life, despite his three other wives, was able to conceive and birth a son. And the firstborn of the beloved Rachel is Joseph. Rachel would give Jacob one more son, Benjamin. And it would be her last act. She would die in childbirth. And when she dies, a part of Jacob dies with her. He had worked for 14 years to have this woman as his his wife. And when she dies, all of that love and favoritism falls squarely on the shoulders of Joseph. Because he is the firstborn son of the woman that he loved. And the rivalry in this family is almost unbearable. Well, what is the manifestation of Jacob's favoritism? You heard it in the text. 
Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph, a beautiful robe, that infamous coat of many colors, that technicolor dream coat. It isn't a shepherd's outfit, it is the coat of a prince. This is the golden child. Joseph is the obvious favorite, and his brothers despise him for it. Verse 4, verse 8, they hated him. Verse 11, they were jealous of him. So what does this young, likely spoiled Joseph do? He pours salt in their bitter wounds and rubs their noses in these dreams that he has begun to have. Dreams that did not require a Freudian or a, or a Jungian analyst to understand. Bundles of grain bowing down before Joseph, the stars, the moon, and the sun bowing down before Joseph. He dreams of ruling over his entire family. And it's not Joseph's fault for dreaming. Dreams run in this family. But Joseph lacked the maturity as a teenager to be quiet. He's patronizing. He can't even finish his cornflakes in the morning before blurting out every painful detail of how he is going to rise to the top over everybody else. Here he is, favored, protected by his father, dreaming these colossal dreams with that bright jacket tossed over his shoulder, prancing around like some kind of monarch. And it would be easy at this point to spin a morality tale here about wisdom and how to choose one's words wisely or how the dysfunction in this family is largely Jacob's fault. I mean, he is the one that married four different women. He is the one that, that refuses to diffuse the rivalry. And you could also spin a tale about jealousy and, and, and bitterness and how that's changed the brothers. But return to the beginning. Joseph did not live in a traditional family. Joseph did not live in a nurturing family. His father doted on him to be sure, but Joseph doesn't even have his mother. His brothers hate him. And while he did not create this family into which he was born, Joseph had no choice but to live in it. As the old saying goes, you can pick your friends, but you cannot pick your family. And I can guarantee you this. Your family will not be what you expect it to be. Your family will not become what you thought it would become, what you planned for, it won't become remotely like anything some preacher or some child-raising book-writing expert said it ought to look like. Here are some conversations I've had just in the last year. There's so many conversations like this. Someone comes and says, well, my son really doesn't talk to us anymore. I don't know what we did. I don't know what we said. It's like we've lost him. If I, if I knew how I could fix it, I would, but I don't know what to do. Or this one. My husband came home and said, we're finished. He's moving on. Something about feeling trapped. Something about wanting to be, feel alive. And I thought what we had was forever. I meant it when I said those vows. I thought he did until he ran off with a woman that's young enough to be our daughter. And this one. It looks like our daughter is pregnant. We love her, 
We're going to help somehow. I wanted to be a grandparent, but not like this. Not this soon. And not with that guy as the father. In this conversation. So my son has come out. He's gay. He has a boyfriend. I can't say I'm surprised, but still, it's a lot to process. How, how do I explain this to my parents and the rest of the family? How do I explain this to the people at church? Can he, can he even go back to church with me? And this one, my father will not stand up to my brother. My brother took over the family business, and he is running the business into the ground. Everything that my father worked for all of these decades, and it's going to be gone, and my father won't do anything to stop it. I, I, could, I could go on and on. You see, there is a difference between a dream and a fantasy. And it's especially so for our families. A dream is inspirational and aspirational. It is something that it might be improbable, but it still could become true. But fantasy is a delusion. It's not grounded in any kind of reality. It's not hypothetical. It is impossible. And you can dream about having a life together with someone. You can dream of what your family could look like, but don't get locked into the view that it must absolutely be like this because then you're buying a mass of molded rubber and vinyl. It's not real. If you have a vision for your family that is this vision of perfection, this non-negotiable, ideal, biblical model. You haven't been reading the Bible. You've been watching black and white television shows from the 1950s. You're going to be sorely disappointed. So I won't lie to you as we begin this series about Joseph. Families are screwed up. Families are dysfunctional. All Families are dysfunctional. It is simply a matter of degrees and how much therapy you are going to need to survive it. Your family tree, somewhere along its wild and woolly limbs, it will have or it has or it will have poverty, addiction, secrets and skeletons in the closet, divorce, abuse, Injustice, sickness, suffering, rivalry, hatred, unforgiveness, confusion, and being Christian is not going to insulate or protect you from those things. You will be left with a decision to rage against it, to try to impose your uncompromising template and will onto it of how it ought to be, or let it be what it is. Learn to live with it. And trust God with the completion of the story. Last thought. 20 years ago, I was going through a divorce. I was a new single parent. Right there in the big Baptist church in the little southern town. And a person came up to me. And I know they were well-meaning. You know how southern folks are well-meaning and they say the, just the baddiest things. And I know this person was well-meaning. And this person 
said to me, I am just so sorry that your children will be raised in a broken home. Well, it sort of gutted me for just a second, but somehow, some way, thanks be to God, I found in that moment the grace to respond with the truth and not sarcasm. <laughs> I said, My family isn't broken, and neither are my sons. Oh, we got a scratch or two on us now. It's like a box that kind of got dropped, and there's a dent in the box. But I can guarantee you that we ain't fragile and we ain't broke. No such thing as broken families, dysfunctional families, but they're not broken. You close the book at Genesis 37 verse 11 and you could conclude that Joseph's family is broken. And that nothing good is ever going to come out of Joseph's family. It is busted. It is dysfunctional. It is a mess. But give this story some time. Joseph will, in fact, become far more than a bratty kid in a shiny bathrobe. He will indeed become the figure of his dreams and save the lives of his entire family and preserve the future of what will become a great nation that exists to this day. The hard-boiled hate of his brothers will dissolve into remorse and grief and eventually, eventually, restoration. It will take 30 years for the story of Joseph and his brothers to be told, and it might take that long or longer for you. So if you think that your family is beyond redemption, it's beyond grace, think again. God is still at work. And that is not a fantasy. That is a dream that's waiting to be fulfilled.